I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Today we're talking about how to get hired into a research scientist position. This is one of the most comprehensive shows we've ever done. We're going to talk about everything it takes to get into a research scientist position from your resume to your LinkedIn profile, networking, job referrals, but of course, what you will also do in that role, how it's different from academic research roles and much, much more. We're going to talk to a panel of PhDs working in research scientist roles right now. We're going to jump in. Stay tuned. Lots to talk about. Let's jump in now. So with that, I'm going to bring on a panel. I'm really appreciative of our panel. They're very busy people, very successful people. We have on Ravi and Natalie and Arupsa, three of my favorite people. Hello. Good to see you again. Hi. I really appreciate you guys coming on. Good to see all of you been a while for some really appreciate you being here so i know you're all busy i'll make it quick we could just do a quick round robin if you could introduce yourself and the position and company you're with now and i'll just do it in the order that you came on starting with you natalie thank you isaiah i appreciate it my name is natalie for my phd is in biomedical science and for the last almost three years i've been a scientist one at biomarin pharmaceutical out here in the greater bay area of california and so you're next hello thanks for being here Hi, Isaiah. My name is Rupsa Vasu. Nice to meet you, Isaiah. And uh, I'm happy to be back after a long time, but uh, it's been crazy. So right now I am a clinical immunologist, just got my promotion. And um, it's a nice company. I'm working at Helena Inc. And uh, so it's an infant formula-based company, biotech company. That's where I am. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Rupsa. And Ravi, thanks for waiting. Good to see you. How are you? I'm good, Isaiah. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a while <laughs> since yes. <you> <laughs> Good to see you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm doing good. Um, I'm currently working as a uh, scientist at Sanofi and analytical science department and in greater Toronto area. Uh, so uh, people that are on, um, I think, live uh, can reach out to me anytime. Okay. <laughs> Well, thank you. And I appreciate, uh, appreciate that. Uh, and I think that's, what's amazing about our panel here and, everybody who's ever been in the association, they're so kind and they give back to other PhDs. And I just want you all to know that is our, our PhDs here that are, that are in our panel are just here to, to really pay it forward and to help you. They know that you're in demand in industry. They understand the struggle at the end of your academic career. Um, and they want to you know, give, really give you hope and, and show you the path forward. So I'll, I'll go with my quick two-part question that uh, many of you know well. If you could think back to the challenges you had moving specifically from academic research into industry research before you made the move, right? What were the gaps in your knowledge looking back? Like what challenges did you have just figuring out how to get hired into an industry R&D position, uh, both mindset wise and then more, you know, I guess, practically, you know, resume, LinkedIn, changing those things up. And then how did you overcome those challenges to get hired? And, you know, what do you enjoy the most? on the other side of it, right? So before and after, so challenges and how you overcame it and what, what you love now. And I'll start with you, Natalie. Thank you, Isaiah. So we're talking about the biggest challenges we had pre-transition. All right, yeah. I've said it before and I've said it again. I'm sure it's a broken record to you, but I cannot emphasize the much what 
a large growth that was for me to transition from having a full CV from academia into a clean, crisp, marketable resume. Mm. Your CV matters, and I respect that, that it's the illustrious history of everything you've ever done since you first picked up a pipette, and I recognize that's important, but it was bogged down with so much information that may or may not be relevant to a job description that I think it was really killing my prospects and really not being able to beat some of the electronic screening or some of the HR staff to get into the hands of a hiring manager, mm. or it's just getting lost in the milieu of all the other resumes. So now that I've written industry resumes and I've learned how to look at the job description and zero in and have a hyper focus on what skills I do have and float those to the top, it makes it so much easier for a hiring manager to understand why I'm the best applicant for a job and why I would be worthwhile bringing in for an interview. And now that I'm on the other side of the fence of industry and I'm actually reading quite a few resumes, oh my goodness, it's night and day. I can tell when someone has a good professional resume written and it just makes my life easier. So I mm. feel like that was a really important tool for me to understand. Mm. I think the best part about being on the other side of industry as well is that I feel like I have more independence and capability to understand what I can take on and what I cannot take on as far as bandwidth goes. And I feel like I've been able to gain a lot more independence in saying, yes, I can get this done. This I won't be able to get done for another timeline. I have other projects rather than the guilt trip I had as a postdoc. You need to do everything right away. You better be here every Saturday morning, no matter what. I have I have like clear boundaries now. And I think that's been a really great part about uh, transitioning to industry. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. I, I think what provides that freedom in industry and a lot of us are told maybe, uh, you know, these uh, kind of deterrence stories in academia that, Oh, you can, you know, in industry, you can have a project killed or an in industry you have to work 10 times harder. I mean, this is not true. Right. I mean, there's always, there's always exceptions, but it's really not what provides, I think the, the better balance in industry, the more autonomy in one respect is the better structure, the better project management structure, having clear milestones to hit, right. Most of us in academia never had that. It was just do more. And then when we feel like letting you graduate or go to the next level, we'll tell you. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing that, Natalie, and thanks for coming on so much today. Thank you. Of course. Rup, so we'll come to you next. So same question, you know, what were those challenges you had looking back, the gaps in your knowledge about the differences and how to get hired? How did you overcome them to get hired? And, and what do you enjoy now that you are on the other side? Yeah. So uh, the main problem, what I was facing was I was doing cold applications, 200, 300 plus applications and everything getting rejected and ATS was not giving a damn about it. Um, and I had no idea what ATS was, to be honest, until I joined Cheeky Scientist. Mm. So yeah, I, cold applications went nowhere. I didn't know how to approach. I was sending LinkedIn requests without any note. Uh, you know, rookie mistakes. And you never know about these things until I joined Cheeky Scientist. And then I had an idea, oh my God, these things play a major role. Networking, networking is the main thing. I mean, apply, applying just like that, cold applications was not going anywhere. Then I took a step back, followed the Cheeky Scientist modules. And then it was like, oh my God, this is all like wasting time. And I started networking instead of giving 70% of my time towards networking instead of cold applications. That was the major difference. And then I started getting calls, which was like amazing. I was like, okay, this is the deal. And that was the major difference which I wanted to highlight. And right now, once I'm in industry, 
I would say it's not just, you know, pipetting and doing things regularly. It's also about learning about the business. What is project management? What are OKRs dealing with these kind of things? And I had no idea about it when I was doing my PhD. But thanks to Cheeky Scientist, I was like, I realized one thing, I didn't go for postdoc. And I went into my first industry position right after PhD, and this is my second. So all thanks to you, Isaiah. This is such a great organization. Oh, thank you. I just am really, really proud of uh, you and uh, all of our panelists' success here. And I think for a lot of you, you don't realize that you're, you're going to be hired in an industry for your mind, not just because you're a pair of hands, not the pipette, but you're going to be managing experiments. You're going to be on the business side. You're going to be asked questions because there's overlap between you know what, what needs to happen as a research scientist and what needs to happen as a a business professional. And the company wants you to excel in both areas. Having that kind of support is really amazing. Uh, so, so just remember your value as a PhD to these industry employers and the fact that you can't, can't get hired into these roles. So yep. thank you. Really appreciate your time. And Ravi, thanks for waiting. Same question to you. What were those challenges or those gaps in your knowledge looking back before you transitioned? How'd you overcome uh, them to get hired? And, and what do you enjoy the most about being in industry now? Uh, thank you, Asaya. Okay, so I think uh, I had a few gaps and Natalie and Rupsa highlighted couple of them, which is your resume. And the second one is the networking. Uh, the third one, I would, uh, the big gap I had was being ready, right? So you can have a fantastic resume, you can have a good networking skills and someone that can put your resume on the desk of the hiring manager. But being ready uh, is very critical, right? Like say, for example, you just got into the cheeky scientist. Now you, you learned a bit. Now you go there, network and you get in and but if you're not ready with um, uh, with the skill set that is needed to get through the interview uh, then uh, it's very hard to get hired and given the competition right like there are hundreds of postdocs uh, that want to switch to industrial positions and I think cheeky scientists have uh, a number of people that got hired um, and are contributing back to the community um, and uh, and all your questions, like how to address um, uh, or how to address a question or how to present yourself for entry, all these are covered uh, by not only the modules, but also by the people that have actually attended the interviews and passed and got an industrial position. So this is a valuable set of information that you could have uh, in, in this community. So mm. um, uh, as I said, like, uh, like, there's a lot of competition and you have to be ready when you are presented with an entry, right? Like, because you might get a couple of chances and all you need is that one chance to get through, right? So yes. uh, being ready is uh, what I found challenging. And that's, I think that's where, uh, like I was, like some people are lucky, right? Like they get in within a month, but I was there in the community for like nine months waiting for my job, but I was finally got through. But but the first few interviews, I know what are the mistakes that I did and how I, you know, like over time got myself developed into an individual where I'm confident when I'm attending the interview. So I yes. was an introvert like many of you. Uh, but uh, yeah, over time, I, I developed to what is needed for the interview. So, yeah, yeah so that's, uh, yeah, uh, Cheeky Scientist helped me in that aspect a lot. Uh, currently, I'm in industry for the last four to five years, and I've been 
having a good time. Like the first six months was rough, I have to admit, because, uh, you know, the industry jargon and the way they deal things, uh, it's completely different. But over time, you'll realize that uh, it is rewarding. Um, and they, they constantly notice how scientifically you are sound and, uh, and they give you the opportunities that are needed for you to grow. So all these things like uh, in academia, you're like, um, you know, you look at professorship and you're in the dream that you'll get there someday. I mean, good, like if you have a good uh, CV, you can get there. But in industry, uh, uh, you put in hours of work, years of work, they recognize you and you're automatically you go up. So, so that's what uh, you have a constant uh, growth. That's what mm. I would like to say. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, and there's, there's structure. And I think that's an important yeah, aspect, right? So, it's, it's yeah. your career trajectory is even structure. There's some milestones exactly. and they're not pulled from yeah. you. It's not held in yeah. front of you like so, a carrot. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, you know, what you said too about learning the language of industry, the, the jargon. I mean, these things are not just important once you're hired, it can be important even to get hired. Mm-hmm. You have to always anticipate, right? The next problem. The, the reason that a lot of you are failing in your job search is because. You figure out one, you go after one job lead, you get to a problem, a sticking point, and you're like, oh, I messed that up. And then you got to start over. And then you know what that problem is and you get past that problem, but then you get to the next problem and you don't know what that is, right? It's a whole sequence of events. It's not just resume hired, right? There's always a higher level problem. So if you can see all those in advance, if you know what's to come, if you can prep everything and look ahead, you can succeed. A lot of you, a simple example is so many of you try to get replies from people on LinkedIn. No employers are replying to you. Right. And then suddenly you get a reply and now you're like, oh, what do I do? Right. So it was forever. It was just one problem. You can't get a reply. Then you get a reply. Now you have no idea what to say. You have no elevator pitch. You don't know how to talk. Uh, you don't know how to lead people on an informational interview. You don't know how to get an interview. So there's always a higher level problem. And you have to know the entire protocol, so to speak, the entire lesson plan, not just bits and pieces of it. So Natalie, Robbie, thank you so much for your time. I know you're both busy. Thank you really, I mean, just having industry professionals come on who are doing research right now and able to, uh, to share their experiences with us is amazing. So I just really appreciate their time as well as Rupsa's. With that, let's talk about R&D jobs, specifically how to get hired into a research scientist career. I'm going to start by talking about why, what, did, what does this look like in industry? And then I'm going to get very practical and show you how to design your resume, LinkedIn profile at the very end. So make sure you stay tuned till the end. So in industry, right, as a research scientist, you're doing research. Yes, all of you have a research background, but guess what? R&D, research is only half of the equation. D, development. Most development is done, of course, in industry. And so if you want to get hired as a research scientist, newsflash, you need to learn about development, distribution, commercialization. A lot of the questions they will ask you revolve around this because they know you're thinking like an academic and they don't have time to completely wake somebody up to the reality that R&D requires developing a product, a treatment, a drug. Here's the problem. How many of you have research experience? Now, how many of you have zero development experience? You have zero development experience, zero distribution, zero commercialization. That's the problem, okay? So this is where the research scientists will live. However, what you do requires commercialization, okay? And you need to understand that language. Even the, the word commercialize, go to market. Do you know these phrases? So what is research and development? As a research scientist, right? You're gonna work in an R&D team. This is what allows companies to stay stay ahead of the competition, right? To be creating things that people need now, not something that they needed 20 years ago. 
All right. So you, you have to be very innovative, but you also have to realize that you're trying to commercialize things and you're trying to scale things. This is the process that most PhDs don't understand. And this is why I love working with PhDs who want to get hired into research scientist positions, because I get to work with you one-on-one -on -one to train you in this process, right? Where you go from generating ideas, ideation, right? To research. And, and as research people who are interested in research scientist careers, and that, that's you if you're here, you know, this is as far as we get. In industry, no matter what research scientist career you get, you're going to be doing applied research development. Very little of this is done in academia. Very little. It's on the percentage out of all, if you count industry and academia together, right? 80% plus of development applied research is done in industry. But did you know that in this process, if you look at this as a protocol, innovation's here. That alone is very different, right? A lot of us as academics, we think innovation's here. But ideation is different than innovation. You got to develop something first to innovate it. Innovate it. Do you see the difference? So something's developed. Once it's developed, you can innovate. That's the, that's the, the, the norm, the structure, the framework in industry, which is different than academia. And then you innovate with what purpose? To scale, to get more market share or to bring something to market faster or to improve the user experience. This is causing a paradigm shift for some of you now, let's continue. All right, so the importance of innovation, it's the introduction of new ideas, products, methods, right? Innovation and development are closely linked as a research scientist. And this is something that you need to understand and be able to talk about. So how does R&D relate to innovation overall? R&D directly supports innovation, right? Knowledge, technology, Every enterprise that wants to become and stay relevant needs R&D. So this, these are broad categories. And as, as PhDs, we tend to think, oh, you know, R&D is just something that is in biotech or pharmaceutical industries, but there's lots of industries looking for you right now. And if you limit yourself just to biotech and pharma, if that's what you want, fine. But don't forget about tech. Don't forget about, I mean, even the tourism industry is looking for PhDs to get into R&D. The hospitality I've had, uh, you know, research scientists hired at, uh, with PhDs at Hilton Hotels, Marriott, uh, Nestle, Hershey, Estee Lauder, okay? Uh, what was the other? Um, Tri Tri Trivago, <laughs> the, the, the company that helps you find uh, uh, flights and hotels. Uh, so trends in R&D spending, this is important, right? We, we're very interested in trends as PhDs. You got to be interested in trends if you want to see where the jobs are going to be. It's amazing to see from the 80s how much uh, advertising revenue has, uh, has plummeted at a company because companies know that you have to innovate now. If you want to have something to advertise, guess what comes first? Innovation, R&D. It's amazing to see how like, this has increased sevenfold just since the 1980s, right? So I think what, what's surprising here is that Innovation continues to increase, R&D continues to increase, and it's not just, in, again, in the biotech or pharmaceutical sectors. Telecom, automotive, gaming, tourism. Right, automotive, who, who's the big name in automotive right now that's hiring a lot of research scientists and specifically has recruiters looking like they're called PhD recruiters in the automotive industry? Who can tell me? Of course, health, health and food, pharmaceutical, food and beverage, biotechnology. Tesla, there we go, exactly right. And of course, this has spurred other car companies uh, and automotive companies to look at PhDs and hire for R&D. 
So I think a lot of PhDs don't understand how robust their opportunities are because there's huge names. I mean, would you want to get hired at AT&T as a research scientist getting paid $120,000 a year or you know, what your, your currency or country's correlative? These are positions that we're getting PhDs hired into right now through our diamond program. Automotive, right? Tesla, we talked about that. The gaming industry. And if you break this down, it, it makes a lot of sense why research is so important and what is under this umbrella. We didn't, we didn't invent these sectors. These are the actual sectors of industry. If you look at like the S&P 500, industry is actually industries. So there's sectors and industries. But if you look under gaming, you have algorithm design, simulation and motion capture, crypto, cryptocurrency, right? Mem memory management, uh, mobile online gaming, development, AR, VR, lots of different, very new cutting edge things that PhDs are getting hired into because you have the ability to what? To innovate. You go, you've gone beyond mastering a field to pushing a field forward. That's what you have to do to go from getting a master's degree to a PhD and companies know it. You have a PhD, a doctor of philosophy. What is philosophy? Knowledge and the ability to ascertain knowledge. Tourism, right? Who knew that AI, right? VR, AR was affecting this industry. Personalized travel experiences, robots, chatbots, all of these different things. A lot of it's tech-based, but the tourism industry is booming right now when it comes to R&D. Cosmetic R&D, I think a lot of PhDs are surprised to know that two of the most well-funded companies in terms of R&D are Estee Lauder and L'Oreal. And our skin's the largest org organ, right? We've had so many PhDs. We have PhDs there that are in director roles, principal scientist roles right now. And one, the, one of the fun things I get to do with the people who are in our diamond program is, is connect them to these PhDs working in those principal scientist and director roles. And that's really one thing you've probably realized you can't do by yourself. You have skills, you have experiences, you have a, a PhD for crying out loud. So why is it hard to get hired? Why is it hard to get attention? Exposure. You have no industry network. You have no exposure to industry hiring managers or decision makers. And that's why I said, you know what? I'm going to start working directly with PhDs privately to get them exposure to decision makers. That's what you cannot get anywhere else. And for even for R&D, it's the critical factor. And this is what a lot of you are learning the hard way. Food and beverage, right? How, you know, a lot of you are coming out. Anybody here have a, a food science background? It's exploding. I cannot believe how many food science PhDs uh, are coming out every single year now. There's a lot of competition, but there's a lot of... Uh, uh, companies that are hiring PhDs as research scientists in this area. No food scientists here? I bet there's one or two. Pharmaceutical R&D activities. Okay, this is the bread and butter that a lot of you know about, right? What's big now? Small molecules, synthetic drugs, vaccines, gene therapies, CRISPR. And I'm fortunate enough to know directors at Moderna, at Pfizer, at Tesla, at all of these different companies. And that's, again, exposure. That's the problem. I mean, that's why I've been fortunate enough to help thousands and thousands of PhDs get hired into industry because of this network. Nobody else on the planet has been able to do what I've been able to do with PhDs. And this is why I've been published in Nature, the Harvard Business Review, multiple best-selling books by Wiley because of this. And it's something that I, I saw academic, the academic path was broken. There's no training for you. We have, I mean, for crying out loud, we have career counselors in academia who have never worked in industry giving you advice or trying to give you advice on how to get hired into industry. It's broken. It's a systemic PhD employment crisis. 
but there's plenty of job opportunities for you. The problem is you're just invisible to these employers. Biotechnology R&D activities, right? So there's medical biotechnology. A lot of you don't understand this framework either. There's three types, right? And they, they're actually color-coded, blue, white, and green, medical biotechnology, agricultural biotechnology, industrial biotechnology. So if you're thinking you want to work in biotech, do you know the three sectors? If you do not, and they ask you a question about these sectors, how, how are you going to get hired? That's why so many PhDs, they, they finally get a phone screen, they finally get an interview, and they don't even, they're, ta- they're, at, they're speaking the language of academia. They talk about like HPLC. I remember I put it, I remember I was so proud to put HPLC on my resume. This will get me hired, right? How many of you, this is your experience writing your resume, right? You kind of look around, you do some research, and then you write your resume and you just, you think, you're like, what sounds the most impressive? What are the most impressive technical skills I have? And you be sure to, you, you put those on your resume. You don't really have numerical values in terms of results, quantified results. You probably have somewhere at the top, I have 10 years of experience in microbiology or 10 years of experience. And then all these skills you think are impressive that guess what? No humans are doing at the largest companies. They're being done by advanced robotics or they're being done by people with bachelors that are far cheaper than a PhD. They're hiring you in industry for your mind, your ability to manage robotics, your ability to manage technicians. Type in yes, if you're starting to have a little bit of a paradigm shift here in terms of what it's like to work as a research scientist in industry and what it takes to get hired. And then of course, health and food R&D activities, which is uh, different than uh, food and beverage, but there's a lot of food scientists that get into this too. So supplements, vitamins, nutraceuticals, oral healthcare products, fermented foods, lots of different options, okay? So once you understand the sectors and industries, and that's what I love working on people to to figure out is I, I wanna help you figure out the right company for you the company fit. Okay. And until you know the type of company you want to work with, it's going to be very hard because you can't hit a target. You don't set. doesn't matter how motivated you are as a PhD. doesn't matter how great your skills or experiences are. You can't hit a target. You don't set. So who's your target? What kind of company, any company names? Do you want to work with a small company, large company, for-profit, non-profit? What sector, what industry, like we talked about? There's many factors to consider, right? So I mentioned company size, job security, which can be connected to company size, the company values, opportunities for growth. Might be fun to get in with certain companies, but maybe once you're in at that company, you can never get out of the R&D sector or they just very, very rarely do it. This is why I always tell people, do not do an industrial postdoc because they won't hire you afterwards. It leads to nowhere. Company products and goals, they're focused on research and development. And and you might think, well, aren't they all focused on research and development? No. As a research scientist, you can work with a big R, little D company, right? They're much more focused, as you're seeing here, on bringing new products to the market. Higher investment in cutting edge research and innovative products, right? Small, mid-sized pharma companies, Intel, AMD. When a company gets larger, they tend to shift a bit more towards a little R, big D company. They focus less on new products more on marketing uh, uh, and on, de- on, on uh, marketing current products or developing them in new ways, right? So think of big R, little d, they're, they're trying to do the research, which is early on in that sequence I showed you in the beginning, right? Prior to even innovation, more on the ideation stage. If they're little r, big d, 
it's later, right? They're trying to improve current products that are already in the market or they're buying companies and products, more, a lot more mergers and acquisitions, right? Innovation is intimately linked to current product knowledge, current, current products. So Kaijin, Dell, HP, cell phone manufacturers. You really want to figure this out. What if you get asked, are we a big D, little R company or big R, little D company? Would you be able to answer correctly? Would you know the difference? Now, the fundamental difference overall between academic and industry research, academia, it's much more like, hey, it's exploratory, right? I mean, how many labs out there right now are using funding from one grant for something completely different? Like, you have to do that, right? It doesn't work like that in industry. It's much more focused, and you're translating your research, your knowledge into a product or a treatment or a drug that helps people. You know, you can spend years just building knowledge for the sake of knowledge. You get stuck. That's why so many PhDs get stuck in a learning loop. They get really good at critiquing things like critiquing a job search, not actually executing a job search, really good at playing out different scenarios in their head without actually doing it. How many of you can admit you're really good at this? Like you're really good at seeing a job posting and like playing out different scenarios like, oh, they would they hire me? They wouldn't hire me or they, they have all these skills listed that I don't have or these instruments listed that I don't have. But at the same time, they have that you only need a master's for the job. So now you're totally confused and you just think about it a lot and you play out scenarios. You don't actually spend a lot of time executing, though. The R&D industry offers, right? So what they offer is they offer different positions and they all have their own day-to-day -day tasks. Okay, so client-facing roles. It, a lot of us are surprised to find out uh, that even, at, even as somebody that's in R&D, you will have to be put in front of clients. This isn't a place where you can hide. As the as a PhD level uh, research scientist, whether you, you know whether it's higher up as a principal scientist or or lower, you're very valuable to the company. They're going to put you. They're going to take you to conferences. You're going to do poster sessions. You're going to introduce right new things to the marketplace and, and answer questions. One of the first to answer questions. They're, you know, there's stakeholders. There's uh, investors. There's shareholders. This is important for you to understand for all these types of positions, but these are just some examples of different types of R&D positions that specialize in different things, right? Bench work, research in the field. The, fa the truth is, as a research scientist, you're gonna have to do all of these to some extent, okay? Now, these common trends could be focusing on management, right? Experiments, projects, people, not just performing experiments yourself. I've talked about this. I remember the first, one of the first R&D companies that I went into and did a tour of the facility, I, I was blown away by the size. I mean, like it was a football field size floor and they had multiple floors in a skyscraper of just robotics doing, there's not even a person in, in these rooms, just advanced robotics. And that's what you'll manage. And there's so much data flowing out and flowing in. There's, there, there's, that's why there's like technology development officers and information, informatics specialists and all, all different types of people that you're gonna have to work with on a team as a research scientist. You can get into those other positions as well, but when you're responsible for the research and the analysis and the data, you're working with a team. It's better overall once you learn the format and the structure because you're all working towards the same goal. A lot of questions that we ask, right, as PhDs, because we're coming from academia is, do I still get to go to conferences? Yes, you can go to conferences. You can find companies that do this. Some do more, some do less. Same with publications, though. You can publish in industry, but it's just not your priority. Some companies, maybe like a Genetech or Novartis, they, they, they prioritize publishing a little bit more, but 
it's not it's not the priority and you don't publish things that are proprietary until they're released now what are the skill sets that are going to get you hired this is this is where a lot of you struggle this is why so many phd's end up unemployed at graduation or in postdocs other than getting stuck in a learning loop they really try to flex their technical skills which for the most part, going back to my example of being so proud of putting HPLC on my resume or chromatography or whatever else you're putting, it's laughable to an industry employer. First of all, the gatekeepers, the recruiters, the hiring managers, they don't have PhDs. So they're not even recognizing a lot of these words. They all have their proprietary instruments that they use or proprietary methodologies. So they need you to be able to learn quickly on the job, right? They're hiring you for your comprehension. Uh, they're hiring you for your ability to do research, analysis, innovation, to work autonomously. But a lot of you don't even have research and analysis on your resume or your LinkedIn profile. You don't even have the word innovation. You don't have the word flexibility or project management. You have the PhD. They know that you can learn the technical skills, but are you communicating the transferable skills? If you don't have these six transferable skills on your resume, you will not get hired as a research scientist. I'm going to explain them briefly here. It's important. This is what they're looking for. The initial gatekeepers do not have PhDs. They don't even know what HPLC stands for. Research and analysis, you have to include this. Uh, McKinsey and Company, one of the world's largest management consulting firms, said there's a 20% deficit in the job market for people who can even do these two things, these two skills. Critical thinking, the ability to look at complex problems, ambiguous data, right? To, to find the right problem to solve to even find problems, project management. You've had multiple projects. Your thesis was a project, but of course it was broken down into other smaller projects. The difference in industry is that there's a certain, there's types of project management you'll learn like agile project management, waterfall project management, PM Boke project management, on and on. Cross-functional collaboration. Employers hate the word teamwork. I'm a team player, don't do that. It actually, it'll, it can reduce your chances of getting a phone screen by half. But they want to see collaboration or cross-functional or cross-departmental collaboration. Adaptability, can you change, right? This is connected to risk management, change management. You've got to be adaptable. You've got to be flexible. You have to include this on your resume. They're looking for it. Product and market knowledge. So look around you in your lab, in your department, your classroom, everything, right? A Kaijin kit is a product. Do you think a company wants to hire somebody who's used their product before and has product knowledge or somebody who's never used their product? Somebody who's used their product can dramatically increase your chances of getting hired. So look around the lab, what, what you're using, that company wants to hire you. Let's say you've used one reagent, like one antibody for one type of experiment and another antibody for another type of experiment. Right now you have market knowledge, multiple products within a certain sector. Can you imagine from an employer's perspective, how, how, how differentiated you would be as a PhD to include this on your resume, just that alone. Now. My goal, right, today we're focusing really on research scientist roles. I want to get all of you, even if you don't have a, a postdoc, right, just like Rupsa said, we can get you into principal scientist roles. When I work with you one-on-one, -on -one, that's what I want to do, the highest level possible. However, there's lots of other roles that you might be interested in. We have a structure, a framework for this for every sector. I just want to show this to you because it's not like it used to be where it was just your it's just research scientists. That's it. Now there's user experience researchers, information specialists and researchers, technical development researchers, or more on the project uh, management side as a, a research project manager, quality control, quality assurance. 
the key is even if you're a principal scientist, you're going to have to interact with people in all of these roles on a team. They'll ask you, do you know who's on your team? What are some of the other positions on this R&D team? Very common interview question right now. The industry hiring process at a glance. So networking, informational interviews, referrals, and job application, the resume, right? So this is what I wanted to go through. I'm going to start, start with networking just to help you understand that this is your problem. Lack of exposure. How many of you know for a fact that your lack of an industry network and lack of exposure to industry decision makers is your number one problem? Type in yes. If you know that is your number one problem or will be your number one challenge when it turns to getting hired, type in yes. We have been in this ivory tower, this academic bubble for most of our lives. This is where I was. This is actually why I started Cheeky Scientist in the first place years and years ago. It's why I spent the last 10 years right, helping PhDs do this because it was so painful for me. And what most of you will do is you'll kind of just sit around in moderate pain, underpaid, underappreciated, because as PhDs, we can handle a lot of psychological pain. We, we actually think that pain in one sense, challenge is healthy. So we'll sit there underpaid, underappreciated till we're 30, 40, whatever. Well, this is normal. And, and then it's not until things are so bad till we can't even afford our rent or we're on food stamps or we're in our sixth year of our postdoc or we're unemployed at graduation that we're finally like, oh, I better, do, I better take some action, the transition. I better talk to somebody about what it actually takes, what the process looks like. Don't do that. So adding value, AVF, we call it, add value first, connect, build relationships. Look, this, you don't just like uh, cold contact somebody. You, you get into the association or similar, you get around other PhDs like our panelists who want to help other PhDs, the right network, the right culture. And then you talk to them, you have a conversation. It's as simple as asking them, you know, what are you excited about that you're working on right now? I have scripts for this. I, I make it easy. And if you have, imagine me introducing you to somebody like a director at a company, how much easier it would be if you have that introduction. If you try to do this by yourself, you'll fail. I can tell you most often you will fail or it'll take you years. And then you'll wait like a lot of PhDs do until they just fail constantly for months and months and months until they finally say, oh yeah, it is exposure. Oh, I'm not above the process. Oh, they don't just hand out industry jobs where the average salary is $91,112. I guess I better get some information. I guess I better talk to somebody who actually understands the transition process. Another reason to talk to people, right, is to know what jobs are actually available. Most jobs are not posted. How many of you have been looking for jobs online and you're like, I can't find any jobs for my background? It's just, you just see the same jobs over and over. Most jobs are not posted online. Most jobs are filled through referrals. Now, for all companies, it's 50%. For PhD-level jobs, it's 60 to 70%. But only 7% of applicants get referrals. This is the data that employers see. This is from a large-scale study done by Forbes. As an employer, you know the fastest way to hire somebody is through referral, and you know they're most likely to stay. So if I'm a hiring manager or recruiter, do you know what I get promoted on? My two-year retention rate. How many people I hire who stay for two years or longer? And I'll show you why this is important here in a minute. But that's, what they're, that's why they hire through referrals. Okay, informational interviews, referrals, job applications. I'm going to talk about referrals next. And I'm going to talk about recruiters, the kind of recruiters you should ignore and the recruiters that uh, you should talk to. Now, informational interviews, this is what I love doing with you personally, but I also love setting these up 
with people that are in the positions you want to get. Imagine being able to do an informational interview with a director at Regeneron. I know one, Natalie Fioschi. Imagine being able to do an informational interview with a principal scientist at an Estee Lauder uh, or an Ecolab. Uh, this, this is what's possible if you have exposure. And then you just need to be told what to say. It's not hard. People love answering questions about themselves. I'll show you when you're doing an informational interview, you talk about the other person so that they don't hesitate in giving you an answer that could be wrong, right? When you ask people objective questions, you're setting yourself up for failure in a job search. But this is what we were trained to do as PhDs. This is why so many PhDs fail here. We say, what do you think is the most important thing for XYZ sector? They're like, well, I don't want to answer this. There's too much pressure because I don't you know, know. But if you ask them a question about themselves, what, what to you, to your position, what do you enjoy working on the most? What do you think is the most important thing that you're doing right now? What are you most excited about right now? What's the biggest challenge to you? That's their subjective experience. Now, they don't have to worry about the answer because they're just, they know they're giving their opinion and people love to give their opinions so much. They often give unsolicited opinions. That's the key to an informational interview here. So you ask questions that are at this first level of professional intimacy. How'd you get into the field? What's your typical day like? Then you go a little bit deeper in terms of professional intimacy. And this is something most PhDs fail at because they stay up here. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Who's had a circular conversation like that where it got awkward before? And you, you, you never get to a referral because of that. You got to go deeper. Okay. What is the culture like? How do you work on the weekends? Like you would only answer, you only ask one of these questions <laughs> at each stage, right? And then the end, so many PhDs are so scared because they think they have to ask, will you give me a job referral? You don't ask, will you give me a job referral at the end? You say, is there anyone else at the company you think I should talk with? What advice would you give to someone in my position? Very often when you ask this correctly, after you've gone to the deeper and deeper levels of professional intimacy in the right sequence, they'll say, well, I can tell you about positions that are opening up in my company, or why don't you give me your resume, I'll pass it on to the employer. How would you describe a successful employee here, right? You have to, you slowly go to deeper levels of professional intimacy until you're able to change the context to talking about job searching. Referrals. You need referrals. Most employees are incentivized. For PhD level jobs, it's about $2,000. If I refer you, you get hired, I get $2,000 bonus. Do you know how to leverage that to your advantage? I want to work with you to help you leverage that. It's easy, but you don't, don't, you don't go up to somebody and say, hey, can you help me get a job? You got to go through the process correctly. And you got to stop wasting your time with external recruiters, okay? A lot of these external recruiters, there are some good ones that belong to like a large staffing firm. But many of them are just working by themselves. They're like real estate agents. They're called recruiting sharks. And you're getting on the phone talking to these people, right? You answer a question and guess what happens? They hang up on you. Who's experienced this? Right? Do you need sponsorship? Yes. Okay. I'll get back to you. Bye. <laughs> Do you have these skills? Well, no, but I have this skill. Okay. Bye. If you hadn't had these conversations, right, you will, you need to ignore those people. Instead, I want you to focus on hiring managers. Okay. I want you to focus on people working at the company. Ask them some questions. What's your affiliation with the company? Ask a recruiter that next time they contact you. Make sure they're worth your time. If you go to their LinkedIn profile and they don't have the company's logo, like they're not working with the company, they're not an internal recruiter. These are the people that can actually get you hired. Internal recruiters, internal hiring managers, internal acquisition specialists, talent acquisition specialists. 
Okay. They spoke it. They, they're the ones you want to talk to. That's who I want to put you in touch with. Okay. Now your resume. So 10 seconds max. It's usually around seven seconds. That's all the time you get. That's even if it gets past the applicant tracking system software. Two pages, five parts, summary, work experience, education, technical skills, awards, and hobbies. Uh, if your resume is not up to date, right? If, it's, if you're not getting any traction, I highly recommend at least talking to one of our transition specialists on a transition call. So if you want to figure out where you're stuck, what might be wrong with your resume, what might be wrong with your approach, book a call with one of our transition specialists before this webinar is over. The link is in the chat box. We got about five minutes left. You need to have five, five, five resumes, really five templates in your toolkit, and you should structure your resume for all of them. Now, the interview process. Can you imagine spending, like some PhDs spend months just to get an interview and then having no idea what happens on the interview process? They don't even know if they're talking to somebody from human resources or if they're talking to a hiring manager. They don't even know the difference. They have no idea how to show up to a video interview. They have no idea what kind of like the audio, the video, how to engage with three people in a panel, let alone the on-site interview, how to negotiate. They get asked at this stage, what are your salary expectations? They have no idea what to answer. You're uploading your resume. You're asked your salary expectations. You have no idea what to answer. On average, every open position gets 525 applicants, 12 to 15 are asked for a phone screen at the most, by the way. Four to five are asked for a video interview. One or two get a site visit. Can you imagine even getting to this stage and not being fully prepared, never having trained behaviorally? As PhDs, we think we'll rise to the occasion. We'll all of a sudden be like really great, fun, cheery people to be around. Guess what? They know it's fake. Do you know that in your lifetime, you'll do seven to 10 interviews? Do you know that's how many a hiring manager will do each day? They know if you have do not have behavioral practice. They'll know if you're just answering questions based on what you read. They'll know if you're being fake. PhDs really struggle here, right? So on the panel interview, for example, you have to find out who everybody is and connect with them before on LinkedIn. Do you know how to get a brief from a hiring manager, right? There's always a higher level problem. You need to know the entire process so that when you get to the next stage, you're ready. Types of interview questions, credibility, opinion, behavioral competency. Which one of these questions do you think is the most challenging? Who can tell me? Which one of these questions do you think is the most challenging? Recruiter Magazine was the source for the 525 stats, but larger companies like a Pfizer, right? Moderna, Regeneron, they can get up to 2000 resumes per open position. Believe it or not, behavioral questions, are the toughest, they're, they're specifically meant to elicit stress. Now, for every 45 minute interview that you'll go on, five to 10 minutes will be spent on credibility. Sometimes more if it's somebody that's in a cross-functional role who got told that day, hey, interview this person, they're coming on site, right? They'll look at your resume and they'll ask you questions based on your resume, which is why getting your resume right is so important. It stays with you till the very end. Then opinion-based questions, five to 10 minutes here too. The one that everybody gets scared of is what's your biggest weakness, right? These are easy to answer if you have the right structure. Behavioral is the tough ones, right? What's, tell us about a time when you couldn't cope with the stress of your work. 
why are you quitting academia? Why should we hire you if you gave your life to academia and, and you quit? Are you going to quit this job? It depends on how tough it is, right? But if you're one of the last two candidates, you're going to get a lot of these questions just to see how you respond to stressful situations. Why? Because a company can't hire you and try you out for two weeks, right? There's all kinds of insurance or legal issues or whatever. So they want to see how you respond to stress the best they can without having to hire you. Competency. This is what most of us focus on. How many of you looking back have focused mostly on competency-based questions? Like I'm going to be asked how to set up an experiment. Type in yes if that's me. Estebaliz, I'll answer your question more specifically in depth here. Uh, in general, though, you do not want to have a works-cited section on your resume. Okay, there's no hiring manager, gatekeeper out there who's thinking, what is the volume and issue number of every publication they have? Instead, I'll go back to it real quick. In this part of your resume, what you want to do is, and there's much more here than we can cover in an hour, but in this summary section, you want to say, I have XYZ skills resulting in three publications, including a nature publication. If they want a works-cited list of your publications, they will ask. You want them to ask. You do not want to list it on a resume because it's going to be very hard to get it to two pages, and the initial gatekeepers do not want to see it. They don't understand it. You, you're welcome. Now, as far as the structure of how to answer, you got to use the STAR technique. Like if, I, if somebody asks you your biggest weakness, there's no like surprise answer to give where you can succinctly say a weakness. No, you tell a story and said, well, say two years ago in the lab, you know, I was a little bit self-conscious and, and didn't want to ask for help from the postdocs that were in the lab when it came to my cloning experiments. Uh, you know, but I, I wasn't having success. So finally, I, I started coming in early, got help with, from one of the postdocs. I learned how to do the process correctly. And now, you know, the cloning experiments led to publication XYZ and, and grant uh, ABC, right? So you set up a situation, really a problem, the task at hand, the actions you took to overcome it and the results, right? So it shows the point that you may have a weakness, but you will work to overcome them. They ask that question on purpose because it makes a lot of PhDs freeze when all they have to do is put it into a story. And any a story can be created from any problem you've ever had by providing context. This is something that I like to work on PhDs with because you got to get a lot of reps in. But if I ask you, do you have any questions for me? I've had multiple global 500 employers come to me and say, we couldn't hire him because we couldn't hire her because they messed this up. Here's what they said. They didn't have any questions for me. And a lot of it has to do with when you're given the chance to be in the driver's seat for the interview, you blow it. You ask academic-based questions, or you do what a lot of people do in the moment. Oh, I think you answered all my questions. Yeah, right. Okay. They know you're not prepared. They're looking for you to show some business acumen. This is actually a competency-based question, right? Do you have any questions for me? That's a competency-based question. You need to be asking hierarchy-based questions. Who will I be reporting to? M&A. Mergers and acquisitions, what collaborations are underway? How many of you can be honest, say yes in the chat box that you would not have thought to answer, to ask at least five of these questions? Type in yes in the chat box. Because we don't have training. We don't have formal business training. How is the company being restructured? How many of you love these questions? Type in yes. You're probably taking snapshots right now. Where's the honest people at? Career trajectory. Where have others in this position gone? There we go, Manisha. Emerging markets, where is the client base expanding? 
This is crucial. I don't have time to go into today, but crucial. Sales and market. Which products are creating growth? Can you imagine if you ask this question? Oh, it just changes their entire perspective of you, right? You don't want them to see you as uh, just another lab rat that they're that they're going to have to relegate in the lab, and they give you a junior position when you when you fail. I've I've seen too many PhDs get hired working side by side with people with their bachelor's or master's, which I think is career failure. And then they have to spend an average of five years getting up to the management level that they should have started at as a principal scientist. I want you to avoid that. Now, I just like talking about onboarding because once you're hired, right, you have to onboard correctly. There's usually a probationary period of about 90 days. And this is based on, right, this chart. Cost to value of an employee, right? So this is the economic value of you. When you're hired, it's negative. Did you know it costs at least $60,000? They usually say it costs whatever your starting salary is. That's how much it costs to hire and train you. So your economic value to the company is negative to start, right? They have to invest. This is onboarding. They want to get you to this spot as quickly as possible. This is a chart you usually see after you're hired. So this is the goal of the onboarding process is to get you to baseline. And then they want to get you up here. This is where they start getting some return on their investment. This is why there's automatic pay increases. Imagine what it would be like to finally have used your PhD to get into a PhD level job. Imagine that. For those of you that are PhD students, imagine having multiple job offers before you even finish your thesis, right? And being able to choose one. And the same day that you defend, you post your defense on LinkedIn, you post the new job that you have in industry. Or imagine those of you that have been chasing postdocs, you're unemployed right now, finally getting into a PhD level role, never having to go back to not having industry experience again. This is what I love to do with PhDs. This is why I want all of you, right? Book a call with one of our transition specialists. Your very last chance to do so. The webinar is uh, effectively over here. Book a call, figure out where you are. See if it matches up with where you think you are. Figure out where you have to go. Figure out what the gap is between. Brainstorm your options in industry. If you want to talk about working with me one-on-one -on -one or talk more about the Diamond program, you can, but you don't have to. Book a call at least to find out where you are if you're serious about transitioning. Now, last couple of slides here, the career ladder, okay? Work on your leadership and mentoring skills from day one. You want to get internal sponsors, people that will talk good about you at meetings that you're not at once you get hired. Take advantage of the training. A lot of PhDs start and they think they have to prove themselves. They have to hit the ground running, so to speak. Instead, you, what I teach PhDs to do is go through a, a period of a deep observation. Learn how the company gets things done. Learn who's actually in charge. Learn the culture. They want to see that you're the eager student ready to listen. It's an important thing. Getting hired is one thing, but you want to get to the highest level possible. I'm very... Very honored to say that I've helped many PhDs get into director level roles through the Cheeky Scientist Association. We have directors at Pfizer, Regeneron, Amgen, uh, Takeda, many other companies, Intel, Amazon, Google, the biggest brands in the world. All of you can be here. You have to remember your value as a PhD. And I want all of you to start here, even if you don't have postdoc experience. And you can, you heard it from Rupsa. You can absolutely get here. Um, Lily and Josephine, so a great example. Didn't want to do a postdoc. I said, don't do a postdoc. She's like, well, I can't get a principal scientist job. I was like, yes, you can. She's a principal scientist now at Ecolab. I want to connect you with these people. You can start at the highest level possible. And when you're in R&D, you can transition laterally too. You're not stuck there forever. That's why I want to help you find the right company for you and the right, the, the, the right path for you. You got to map out this path beforehand.
you want to be a research scientist now? Great. But do you want to move into maybe UX one day? Do you want to move into project management one day? Where else do you want to go? Do business development one day? We want to leave as many options open for you as possible. I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's Cheeky Radio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees. Nobody else offers this. PhDsgethired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD, and remember that knowledge is power, and your network is your net worth. Oh, 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 oh,